while you are doing your job as a human, which is to be my culture bearer, bearing my image into the world. What does the Bible have to say about our culture and more specifically, how as Christians are we to engage with it? In part three of the Christ and Culture series, Ike Reeder, president of Birmingham Theological Seminary, discusses the theology of culture from the Garden of Eden to the Great Commission and how that theology then translates to practical lessons on cultural engagement. And now, here's Ike. We did have a lot of definitions up here last week. And again, to go back to part of our, um, our thesis of what we're trying to talk about is how as Christians do we engage culture? How do we develop culture? How do we make culture? And what is it, what should we, to what extent should we be involved in culture? The idea of culture is this huge idea. As a matter of fact, if you were in the service this morning, <clears throat> you would have heard uh, in 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10, one of the identifying characteristics that, uh, that, Paul, that Peter, not Paul, that Paul in 1 Peter gives, sorry, that Peter gives of the believer is that we are a chosen race. And that word race is a very important word as we think about it and discuss it and look at the concept in our own culture today of race and ethnicity and a whole bunch of issues around it. And as Christians, we have to be prepared to engage many complex issues, not just of our individual place in society, but if, you, if you're still going, I'm going to give you, a, this is a spoiler alert warning. Dad talks about these adjectives, these descriptors as being singular collectives. And so there are these words that are in singular. You're a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a, um, a, a spiritual family. That's a singular, but no singular is collective. It's designed to be as a group, okay? Well, anytime you put a group of people together, what, what happens? A, a culture develops. A culture develops around that group. And so one of the key words that we need to remember whenever we're looking and talking about culture is this word nested, nested. There's cultures nested within cultures. And it's not as simple an analogy as sort of the Russian doll kind of thing, you know, you know, the Russian doll where you pull one off and there's a little one inside and you pull that one off. There's another little one inside that. It's not as simple as analogy as the Russian doll, but it, it functionally works the same way. Culture's a lot more messy than that little wooden doll, that little Russian doll. But functionally, it's kind of the same thing. You will have cultures nested within cultures. And I would be willing to bet that all of us at some point in time in our lives have been the victim of making cultural missteps, right? And most of the time, what we really hope is that somebody shows us a lot of grace when we make a cultural misstep. Uh, and most of the time when someone makes a misstep on our culture, we tend to not show a lot of grace. We're like, you know, you have totally, how, how dare you have, you have, uh, um, you have, uh, you have inflamed the situation. You have angered or frustrated people. And by the way, and I am the chief of sinners, especially when you get down to what we call micro cultures, which are like family cultures and those kinds of things. Um, just ask two people that got married when they were 38 years old, uh, how you start to combine 30. You were 36. I was 38. I was trying to elevate you up to my level. Just kidding. 38, 36. When you get married, when you're, when you've had 14 years of living as a bachelor, like it's kind of, you know, 
you, there's a lot of, and I mean, that's an individual microculture with a larger family market. So all these issues of cultures are huge. You can look at it as, as, as tightly as looking at family cultures, our church cultures, our small group cultures, or neighborhood cultures, all the way to as broadly as national cultures. And right now in America, I think one of the most, I mean, one, one of the most um, uh, difficult questions that we're asking is, we are struggling with this, uh, with our, uh, with a national cultural identity, because there are a lot of microcultures inside that national identity that are asserting their right and their and their um, and their uh, their their feelings on the historical culture and all kinds of other things, right? And and here's the the answer to this question is that that none of them are actually necessarily right or wrong. They're each creating culture while they're even arguing about culture. Does that mean, do you see what I'm trying to say? Like, I mean, you can assess those cultures and, and for, for moral validity, for, uh, for efficacy, for effect, for all those kinds of things. But all of them are actually right about, no, this is American culture. Well, sure, because you've created that culture in, within this larger context of an American national culture. See what I'm saying? All that to say is they're very complex. So when we started to look through this, we wanted to answer the question, what is culture? Then we certainly want to look at what are some Christian views on engaging culture? Or like, are we supposed to engage culture? Is there an actual call in the Bible to engage culture? That's what you read for today. Then what is a reformed Christian view of cultural engagement? And uh, we're going to try to get into, those are the two questions we're going to answer today. And then the practical lessons are what we're going to finish up with next week when we look at Niebuhr and Tim Keller and some other ones. So we're not going to read through these again. We already looked at these. Notes on defining culture. It's basically that culture is everything. Culture is all these things around us. Culture is all these mechanisms. And, you know, we, we, we put uh, Elliot and Rookmacher's quotes into context by saying that it, all these things are combining to create culture. Religious beliefs, arts and literature, politics and government communication, both the language, the speech, and the symbols of communication, as well as the style. I mean, even when we get down to the, the, uh, the, the, um, the uh, auditory components of our, of, our, uh, of our speech and our language, right? I mean, you're, you identify by how you sound and where, where you're from. And, and if you don't think that's important, then you can, it's not just, oh, you sound like you're from the South and you sound like you're from the North and you've got that nasally Midwestern kind of thing or whatever. You don't sound, it's not even any of those things. It is that if you don't say certain names of places in Birmingham right, people know exactly <laughs> where you're from, where you've been and what you've done and which parties not to invite you to therefore. <laughs> And, and I literally mean that. And I'm, not, and, and I'm not saying like Birmingham's the only place with that problem. Every city has that problem, folks. You're not going to move to Nashville and like lose that problem. You're not going to move to Atlanta and move. To, you're not going to move. You are definitely not going to move to New York and lose that problem. Lest you think it is a Southern problem. You say Queens wrong. You say Brooklyn wrong. You don't talk the way you're supposed to talk from Manhattan. And you ain't crossing, you know, 27th Street to get to the other part of that community. Okay. So this is not a Southern problem for people that get, you know, that's just South. They're all like that down there in the South. Okay. It's a people problem. We identify culture. That's what we do. That's part of how we build solidarity. Okay. And if you haven't, again, listen to this morning's sermon, because it is one of the key components of this morning's sermon as Christians, that Christ breaks down all the barriers of 
culture and all those components to make a new culture, a culture of his people. And then the Bible goes through and gives you the identifying characteristics, which we're going to get to today. So you have those, those issues. People will, it, it's not just how you talk. It, there, there will be ramification, causal ramifications from those things. So it's important to know how all these items are interacting and engaging with one another. And then from a sociological perspective, we identify those cultures in a number of different ways, but the major ones, the four major ones are mass culture, pop culture, high culture, and folk culture. Now, again, you look at those and go, okay, I get those basically, and this is a Sunday school class. We don't need to go into definitions, but remember, the way this is being taught is also an important component about the creation of future culture. And so one of the most important things, we know mass culture and pop culture and high culture, is that mass culture and folk culture are priority. These two, pop culture is sort of the impact of mass culture. High culture represents that sort of artistic culture that has always been present in societies, the, the important plays, the paintings, the museums, all those kinds of things, right? And at, and at a time, those would have been very much off limits to pop culture, but now the places where those cultures are expressed are blurring the lines. But this one, this one in particular up here, mass or consumer culture, would be labeled as inauthentic. Remember I gave you those two words at the end, inauthentic and folk culture are a culture that arises from a local, regional, non-production-based uh, platform would be labeled as authentic. Inauthentic and authentic, which, by the way, is, from the sociologist's perspective, is actually a self-defeating uh, critical methodology because it's implying, I mean, the whole point here is that all these are valid for study, but this one would be manufactured Therefore, it's inauthentic. This one is non-manufactured, therefore it's authentic. That's, a, that's actually making a, a judgment on the two types of culture, okay? So that is, that's, that's just an important point to consider as we're looking at these issues of culture. So again, I will send all these slides to you. So I know some people snapped some pictures last week and took some notes, but I'm gonna run through them really fast. So probably don't start trying to write them down if you didn't write them down last week. All these will be to you. We'll send them out. I'll send them out to Mary Claire this afternoon, okay? Mass culture, which is also known as consumer or media culture, is defined as a culture where social status, values, and activities tend to be centered on consumption. And by consumption, what that means is to, to be consumed. Every one of you in here is a consumer, right? One of the most popular magazines in America is a little magazine called Consumer Reports or Consumer Digest, okay? It's telling you what you should buy. Is it worth buying? Should you spend your money on it? Because we live in, an, a, a, be, and the reason why is because we live in a culture of economic exchange. That's what capitalism is, okay? So capitalism is predicated on people exchanging money for services. It's, it, I mean, that's one of the key components of a capitalist culture. So by, the, by definition, we live in a consumer culture. Now, what the consumer must be aware of is being manipulated into consuming. That's the, that is not the producer's responsibility. That is the consumer's responsibility. Because simply put, if it doesn't actually, if no one actually consumes it, 
then it's not worth producing. Now, by the way, when we get into this big to the topic of how, as a Christian, do we engage in culture around us, one of the most important things for everyone to remember, no matter where you are, it's not just a Christian. And if we look out in the world today, there are boycotts of everything. And every type of person is boycotting every type of thing. It's not just the 80s when the American Family Values folks put us the list of which TV shows you should and shouldn't watch and which ones took advertising dollars for which places. By the way, we did that. Christian culture did that in the 80s a lot. And that, that ball has been turned back on Christians in the last 10 years. There, I mean, and, that's, and, and that, is a, that is a valid tactic to use in a mass culture where consumption is the principal means of engaging with, the, with, with, the, with what is produced, all right? So this is the, that is the, one of the keys of understanding a mass culture is that the consumption of product is the principal tactic of either acceptance or disapproval. The, the consumption of the product is the, is the principal um, message of something's acceptance or disapproval. It's one of the two, okay? So everybody, what, what, what business is the most, uh, I, I don't know if it's actually the most, I mean, I don't, won't, can't pull off the Fortune top 10 right now, but it's in that top 10, is the most valuable business out there right now? Amazon. Because people want to buy from Amazon. I want my Amazon Prime credit card because I get, I get points that I can spend on Amazon. And let me tell you something, this thing paid for Christmas last year because it was my expense credit card for travel. And I maxed out my expense report, every, my expense account every month. And we got a lot more money to spend on Christmas with the family than we would have ever had putting aside savings. So we didn't save anything. We just spent more money. <laughs> that sounds silly, doesn't it? That is a logical process. Why is Amazon putting other companies out of business? Because people, there's, a, there's an old David Wilcox song. It's so fast. If anybody ever knows who David Wilcox is, he's a folk singer-songwriter guy from Asheville that was kind of popular in the 90s. He's not as popular now, but he still plays and produces and stuff. But he had this great song in like 93, and it was called East Asheville Hardware. And he said, um, you know, it was like, an angel appeared, you know, to tell me a message. He said, go to East Asheville Hardware before you go to Lowe's. You'll help to keep their business up. I'm worried they might close. You know, from the, and I mean, it's prescient. Everyone ever seen the movie, You've Got Mail? The old Meg Ryan, Tom Hanks movie in the big bookstore. Well, that big bookstore is now being closed down by the big online bookstore as well. Amazon, you know what I mean? It's a chain. But what we're doing is telling what, 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 so that's great. Well, it's all, oh, man, it's terrible. And we shouldn't do that. And it's digital and it's not going away, but we all use it because what we're telling people is speed and convenience is the most important value in our society. So, I mean, I mean, it wouldn't exist if those values were not the most essential values to us in our society. Now, there, there, there's other values, and that's why you get the rise of, like, 
independent we've gotten a new rise of independent stores and I mean craft breweries and craft coffee shops and all kinds of things people do clearly want something special that's made for them and authentic that takes a little more time but all this study goes to not just show economic production it goes to show the values of particular cultures and the way they engage and interact okay so mass culture is one of the most important ones that shows us that and that's where the thing goes yes jo joby go for it Well, yeah. Well, I think that what most people would argue is, or, or Joseph, go ahead. Yeah. Would you say that other cult or other that there are cults? Other, yes. Just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> or other like habits or um, I don't know how to say it can affect the future ones. So what, like iPhone? I feel like that affected how Amazon became big because soon as phones were accessible, then Amazon. Well, now Amazon preceded iPhone online by a bunch, but what did Amazon, I mean, let me, so this is not answering your question yet. It's, it's addressing Joseph's that will then answer your question. Or go ahead, Ed, yeah. Somebody else answered the question. You're good. I mean, you still had that trend going on before because right. Walmart was before Amazon and Walmart was doing the same thing with bricks and mortar. And, and well, and that's what Wilcox song was Lowe's and Home Depot versus the corner. Like there's a, like there's a small little, uh, um, hardware store in downtown Matthews that I remember going to growing up that we had to drive to and they had the the tin you know the little tin tin containers with the nails in them and you would but you would get the little paper bag and you'd pour the push and it would and you'd put it on the scale and you'd see how many nails you bought and everything else you know and all those things were going on and then by by that point in time the early 90s I mean there's a it's a it's a long slow process of of moving up the ramp of industrial production is what we're looking at here. These things are just the logical equivalent of, of, that's why they call it mass culture, because one of the key things is mass production that feeds into mass culture. The more you can build and sell, and then you're, you're then tapping into a number of other uh, human psychological components. So it's important to remember that most of these companies, they all employ psychologists, right? I mean, like, Ed, you're in sales, right? Sales is a huge part of sales is what? Psychology. It's understanding the psychology of a buyer, okay? What do they want? What do they need? So it's, it's a both and is the answer to your question, Joby. It is a, both a recognizing trends in culture and then recognizing how to ex grow or exacerbate those trends to then reach another level when then build that. And then what technologists do is they find easier ways to make that happen. So like we're driving in the car home from the lake yesterday, Wynn and I were at a friend's birthday party for Wynn and he was telling me about this video he watched that had all these different things. He was like, so there's science, there's people out there and what they're doing is they're really actually trying to create the things that you see in superhero movies. He was like, I was like, Yes, there, there are, as a matter of fact. As a matter of fact, one of the things that drove the modern computer age was the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. Because what happened is, is people started moving away from the, the, the development of computers from being a, uh, how much more power can we shove into this big giant room of processors to how can we make this big giant room of processors smaller? That was a massive shift 
in the way that computer technology development was going. We, we see something and we want to develop towards it. And then the technologists come and say, how can we make this thing that's a future thing happen better, faster, with more power, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So this is where that concept of nesting is really important because it's not just the nest. It's also the messiness of how all those nests are overflowing into one another. Does that, does that make sense? So that's where we stand with this. It's both a self-fulfilling prophecy, prophecy and a action that develops its own, you know, its own prophecy to be there to begin with. All right. Um, it's both that the culture wants it and that they're moving forward with it. So then we have pop culture. Let's move forward really quickly because what I really want to do is get to the, to the, to the Bible stuff. Although, I mean, this stuff re makes us realize how, I mean, incredibly complex this is. Like that most of us just want to throw up our hands and be done with it. Or we want to get dig, dig into one little part of it that we find cool. All right. The psychology behind all this stuff, it really is fascinating. So pop culture is, you know, used to be sort of the shallow, trendy sort of things that were going on. Now it's a significant area of academic study, and which I agree with, by the way. I think it's very important that's a significant area of academic study because it, like any culture, you know, I mean, just it was you were saying a minute ago, you know, cult, culture, cult. And I was just made the joke about, look, there is cult. Well, there's a reason that cult that comes from the same root. And it's talking about groupings. That's what cults are. They're groupings around an incredibly strong value structure. Okay. That's normally run by one person who's imposing those values on other people. Cultures normally run very strong groupings based on certain values. Oftentimes, those values are oftentimes controlled and imposed by a minority of people that then impose those onto other people and other people want to be part of that group. So you begin to accept those values. That's pop culture. That's what pop culture does. It's this flow of trends and values and people not wanting to miss out on things or somebody that has cachet saying that this is the thing that then people want to jump on. And that's that word, that acronym you hear a lot now that was never used. I mean, the idea was there, but it was never used. That acronym FOMO, which means, you know, fear of missing out. Like, I don't want to miss out on that, right? And, and FOMO's always been there. Anyone that's raised kids know that FOMO's been there. So-and-so down the street got it. I want to get it. Well, let's wait till the second generation, son, because second generation technology is much more dependable than first generation technology. No, I want it now, right? I mean, everybody, every kid has always wanted it now, okay? So that's not new, but that's popular culture. That's reacting to trends and immediate, uh, the immediate environment in which you find yourself. And then you have the high culture, which tends to be that sort of the lasting, the ethereal. You always talk about high culture with a British accent. <laughs> that's why Downton Abbey is high culture, because it's all in British. High culture is that sort of what, what most of us think of traditionally when we think of culture. We think of the art, we think of the plays, we think of Shakespeare, we think of all those things. And to be sure, it is culture. It's, we, that would be called cultured. Don't be gauche, people would say, right? That means be, don't be un, gauche literally means uncultured. Don't be uncultured. But, you know, you didn't grow up in a barn making folk art. Yeah. Just a joke there from our folk culture. Okay. Folk culture, where you grow up in a barn and you make art without British accent. That's the definition of folk culture, if anyone's wondering. 
No, folk culture is fascinating. It's awesome. It's amazing. And it represents local environments. And the key thing about folk culture that I want you to see is that there is a re renaissance of folk culture in the last 30 years, starting in the, in the mid-90s as we became, and it's, and it's a reaction to becoming more global. As things become more homogenous, people want more diversity. They want those, the, they want a lot of those um, uh, uh, foundational or they want their, uh, their, their local and regional cultures to, to shine in many ways and not be subsumed into a larger culture. So again, culture, this is another thing about that culture, this ebb and flow, the conflict of culture, the engagement, the interaction. And so what, what scholars have done is begin to label folk culture as authentic culture which would mean that it would be opposed to inauthentic culture. And I think that the key question that one would want to explore in dealing with culture in general is, is there even a difference between authentic and inauthentic culture, you know? And, and that's, a, that's a serious question, and you'll find many, many scholarly articles written about that. All right, we gotta, but, we, but, we gotta, but what as Christians does this mean that we do? Well, it means that we have to be uh, we have to understand what we're called to do as believers. And so this is the book I would love to recommend to you. Recommended it the first week, but this is the Bill Edgar book. It's called William Edgar. It's called Created and Creating. It's a biblical theology of culture. Now, if you read this book, let me just tell you really quickly, this is not a book that will cite lots of movies and music and high culture and those kinds of things. It is a detailed biblical exploration of our call to be engaged in culture as Christians. It is much more like, it's. I mean, it's more like listening to a Harry Reader sermon, you know, where there's a couple of illustrations than it is like listening to, you know, a TED Talk, okay? It's a lot of the culture books are like extended TED Talks. This one is a biblical study. What does the Bible say about culture? What does it say about the Christian's engagement to culture? How does it charge the uses and the explorations of culture in the Old and New Testaments? It is fascinating, but it is a deep biblical study. So if this, it, is, it is building a theology culture so that sort of a book two can come out, which then asks the question, how do we do that? Does that make, see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? So that's where Bill is. So I'm gonna, we're going to get the Cliff Notes version of that right here. So the Cliff Notes version of, of Bill's um, of, uh, of Bill's argument, that's supposed to be 28 and 29. I forgot to change it after we talked last week. Sorry about that. Is this idea of Christians as culture makers and understanding, especially for Reformed Christians, what you have to understand is the continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I gave you the example last week. It's worth repeating again because it was heard by literally hundreds of thousands of people. It's got the YouTube count when Andy Stanley, whom... I like in a lot of ways and does a lot of things. He's increasingly going off the reservation. Um, I hope that's not I mean, if that's disappointing to some of you for hearing that. So you can still listen to him for leadership. But in a sermon about a month ago, he stood up and said, look, the worst question you can ask as a Christian is what does the Bible say? That's the worst question you can ask. And here's why. Because I hear Christians use the Bible wrong all the time. So I'm sick of them asking that question. As a matter of fact, I think what we need to do in our, in our in Christian culture today is we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Just get rid of it. Doesn't have anything to do with Christianity. And I mean, I could play the clip. I could literally look up and play the clip for you right now and show you that I'm not exaggerating. 
Now, I've listened to the whole sermon and I've gone through, and what he's trying to do is get people down to focusing on what Jesus says. A little bit of a problem with that. There's a little movement called, he's, he's definitely buying into the movement called the red letter movement, which is really what's important is just the words of Christ. If he's the teacher, he's the only one we really need to read. Okay? The problem is, is Christ has this little frustrating tendency to quote the Old Testament <laughs> and say things like, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So in order to answer that question, we really need to understand. And by the way, that is the logical consequence of a dispensational theology, which believes that there are closed time periods in which Christ has moved in certain ways. And they can only inform one another as sort of moral lessons, but not as continuity of God's work. Explain a continuous continuity, logically, spiritually, continuity of the way he has functioned and engaged with his people. Dispensationalism breaks it down into areas and groups. I found it very fascinating that our Sportsman's Blast speaker for last, last year was Paige Patterson, who has gotten in quite a bit of trouble since then, unfortunately. You can look that up on your own. Um, but he is like one of the foremost dispensationalists and extremely anti-reformed and Calvinistic thought. But, you know, praise the Lord. Gospel message for people so we can all work together. But it was fascinating. He was saying, I was like, there's a couple of things that Harry would say very, very differently. Um, but, but it was used well. But this idea of the continuity of the covenants is extremely important. And so what we believe in Reformed theology, this is a quick just Reformed primer, is that the covenants are part of a continuous agreement between God and man, and if it's an agreement, really it's an agreement between God and himself, that he is working through history to bring redemption to his people. And his people are the elect, and the elect are in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the method of salvation is the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. What does Hebrews 11 tell us? That they were saved by what? By faith, not by works. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, if you're Reformed, you got to start asking questions. Well, if it's in Christ alone, then how in the world did those Old Testament people get saved? They were saved because they anticipated the coming Messiah. Christ didn't have to die for his death to be efficacious for all who come to him by faith. Okay? So that means these covenants have to be connected one to the other. And so you have these connections back and forth. The old covenant, you have the covenants that are with the patriarchs and with the nation of Israel. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus fulfills those covenants and establishes the new covenant. The new covenant does not say these old covenant promises were different or that they had no purpose or had no meaning because now we got a new covenant. It's not a new contract. That's why a covenant's not the same thing as a contract. Jesus doesn't tear that up and say, well, maybe I didn't sell you the car the way that I meant to the first time around. Let me give you a new contract. Well, the new covenant contains within it all the promises of the old covenants. They are just now promises that are spiritually fulfilled and are growing to be physically fulfilled. All right? 
So this, this connection between these, Jesus does not, he does not get rid of those. And then you have circumcision, which is now reflected in baptism. Circumcision was in a patriarchal society and a male sign. Baptism is a genderless sign. This was part of a nation that was, that, that was a physical nation that was in a patriarchal society, which, by the way, was pretty darn progressive for a patriarchal society. If you go look at Israel in relationship to other ancient Near East countries. But now he's given us a genderless sign. Passover was a sign that pointed to death. The Lord's Supper now points back bloodless to the death and praise instead of in faith and looking forward. And then we have, most importantly for us, a mandate that we were given at creation in Genesis 1, 28 and 29. So let's open up to that real quick. Genesis 1, 28 and 29. And let's see this, this passage. Many of you are familiar with, you've heard it a lot, and it's called the cultural mandate. So God, in verse 26, makes man in his image. And he gives them dominion. That means rule over, all right? And then he says, now, what are you going to do with that dominion? As well as repeating the dominion. In, 20, in uh, 26, up above, he says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And why do they get, by the way, why do they get the dominion? Because they're better and cooler than everybody else? No. They get the dominion because they are the ones that are created in God's likeness. They are the ones that are created that God communicated his attributes to. All the other creation displays his attributes, his goodness, it displays his power, displays his creativity, but they are not given his attributes. They are not made in God's image. He creates man and he says, we will create man in our likeness. As I love how Tolkien says it. Tolkien says that man is God's regent. Man, humankind is God's regent on earth. They are the representatives of the king, enacting the king's authority, which also does not mean the authority uh, it means the authority to be good, to care for, to steward over. And so he gives this mandate to his regent on earth. So verse 28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. By the way, that is all ancient Near East speak. Okay, we're going to see it again in just a second. That's ancient Near East code language for the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, and every living thing that moves on earth. That means what? That means everything. That's, 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 that's cosmological language. Fish mean everything over here, down deep and under and everything else. Birds means everything up high that are in the heavens and all that stuff. And then they'll, sometimes we'll say, and every living thing, or sometimes say, the beasts of the land. And that means everything that's on the land. That's cosmological language to mean everything. Just like, well, I could give you an example, but I'm not going to. Does that make sense? You got that? Okay. So if this is the mandate that we are given at the garden to care for this stuff, to have dominion over it, um, to be fruitful in it, to multiply in it, to subdue it. None of the, it doesn't, not, all those things are, are code language for, it doesn't just mean um, have sex and have babies and make, human, make, hum, make the human race great again. Like that's not what it's saying, okay? Like grow the human race. I mean, it is, that is part of what it's saying. 
procreate. Um, part of the cultural mandate, the man and woman being together, all that stuff is there. But also the other language means care for it, care for this earth, grow it, make it beautiful, be, express yourselves through it, but with respect for both the creation and my people that are on this creation that are here. This is an all-encompassing command. That's why we call it the cultural mandate, because literally we're using the word culture there to mean what culture means. It means every expression of mankind. Remember what Eliot said back at the beginning? All these things we make that's worthwhile. And, and Rookmacher said, life as one. All the expressions of ourselves. That's why we call this statement the cultural mandate, because it's expressing man's need and and calling to create culture on earth. God says create it, okay? Now, if you believe the Old Testament should be unhitched from the New Testament, then you get to the New Testament and that command's gone. The covenant promises are gone. All those things are gone. We don't believe that. We believe they're connected. So where do we connect them? If we've got Jesus and the covenants, we got the expressions of the covenants, baptism, and the expressions of the old covenant, circumcision and prayer, are replaced with the new covenant expressions, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Then we have the cultural mandate that's back here that we then get the Great Commission, which is up here. So flip over to Matthew 28. And this is a command that's repeated three times. But we normally go to Matthew 28. It's the fullest expression of it, okay? So it's also told in Acts, and it's also told in Luke. But Matthew is the one that tells it the most completely. None of them contradict each other. They're all saying the same thing. They just have different emphasis areas. And Jesus gets to the Great Commission. And so they're worshiping Jesus, even though some are still doubting. They have seen Jesus. He has gone through, by the way, he spent 40 days going through and doing what? Showing how he was present. The road to the mass, he says, and reveals to them how he was present in all the scriptures. All right? Doesn't, that doesn't say how he got rid of all, like you don't need this one anymore. You can cut this one out now. You can excise this one from the Bible, or from the Old Testament, from the Pentateuch, if you will, and the prophets. No, he's showing how he was present in all those scriptures. And then he finishes by saying, and that's what he does for 30 days with his people when, he, when, he res, when he's resurrected from the dead. Then he comes to the very end and he's leaving and he says this to them. He says, and when they, and Jesus came and said to them, and when, let's go back that one sentence. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted, some still doubted. Even after seeing the resurrected Jesus. So it's, that's okay to doubt. It's okay. You're going to have times where you're like, is this true? Do I really believe this? Jesus didn't come to them and say, did I not have... I am standing here in front of you, Mrs. Friday. Did you not, can you not figure it out that I'm real? Well, Jesus, I just don't, I mean, yeah, it's hard to, I mean, it's being raised from the dead. That's a little weird, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's okay, but he doesn't come to them. He comes to them and he says, no, go do this in my name. Now, 
as, as, as Christians, as those that have been with Christ, since the Old Testament, we have been called to do this mandate thing, to live and have dominion, to create culture. Now he says, I'm supplementing that with a new command that it doesn't, it doesn't get rid of the old command, but you put it on top of it while you are doing your job as a human, which is to be my culture bearer, bearing my image into the world. That's what every human's job is. Because even if you were, and by the way, for even those that have rejected Christ, you're, they're, they're still what? Image bearers of Christ. That's why we show respect and love and kindness to everyone we meet. Because they are still image bearers. They are still creating culture. They're still fulfilling the cultural mandate. They're just not doing it well because they're rejecting the one who gave them the mandate in the first place. So your culture becomes an act of rebellion instead of an act of the expression of that God. So Jesus says, put this one now on top of it. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. In the cultural mandate, we're called to go. In this one, we are called to go. And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Now, this is a great commission. This is not a cultural mandate. I'm not, this is, the argument is not, do we, so we make a discipleship culture? Is that what you're saying? No, it doesn't. This is the whole point of, ref, of a reformed understanding of covenantal theology. It means you're doing the cultural mandate, and while you're doing it, you have a new mission as a Christian. While you're doing that, you do it discipling. You do it baptizing. You do it teaching. You do it while you're sharing the gospel. While you are going, do these things, okay? These two are connected with one another. We are created beings that are creating always. You are always creating culture. You can't get away from creating culture. You're creating a culture in your family. You're, I, did, I made a mistake this morning. And, that was, and I created a part of culture in our family. And, and I, owe, and I, I mean, I've already thought about it and everything else, but she called me out on it. So I, she's like, this is not new revelation to her. My stepson was not getting ready fast enough. And I told him, if you don't get ready, we're taking you to church in your underwear. <laughs> and Angie said, you're not going to take him to church in his underwear, so don't say that to him. <laughs> and he's very literal, so he will take that as a terrible thing. <laughs> so hold on one second. Let me finish this story. And, and, and he, but what I did was I created culture, but it was a, not a good culture. I created a potential culture of fear or created a culture of, of distrust or doubt, or I created a culture of uh, an inability of him to be able to uh, trust me, right? That doesn't mean you don't tell him, hurry up. It just means you don't do it like that, all right? <laughs> and give a lot of other statements to it. But we're always creating culture, always. Go ahead. Just like, maybe the reason why, I don't know, but was there a need to give the 
sin still hasn't come into the earth yet. You mean the cultural mandate? As a, oh, oh there, why there was not a need to give the Great Commission at that point in time? Well, yes, that was absolutely part of it. Um, and and, and they, there was, I mean, sin was not present. So, but the first thing is not, notice why there's not a Great Commission first. Because Christ had not come to fulfill the promise of redemption. Now, the, as, what's, the, what's the next promise that's given after the cultural mandate? Well, sin comes into the world. The next promise that's given is redemption. Then redemption comes then the opportunity to share that redemption with others is given. And that's the flow of what the, I mean, really what you just did was chart out what the flow of the covenants are. Because this final covenant is a new covenant with us, okay? Um, the final place that you want to look for that is Matthew 20. Or uh, not Matthew 20, sorry. I, I actually brought the wrong sheet and don't have it written down. And this is where I'm terrible at finding stuff. It's in the uh, middle of the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5-ish. And this is where we know. Um, well, it's where, it's where Jesus says, I, I did not come to abolish the law. law but it's 7. Yeah, it's at the end. Yep, there we go. Matthew 17? 517. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I thought someone said 717. I was like, I don't see it right there. Yeah, 517. Thank you, my sweet wife. Christ came to fulfill all. Do not think. This is where Christ gives the outline for this. And this is what we finish with. Do not think that I have come to abolish the, the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, in heaven and earth, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And by law, he's referring specifically to both the Pentateuch and the Ten Commandments and the moral law, okay? Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's hinging our redemption and our life on, it's not just... Christ, it's understanding who he is and what he came to do. And the law, one of its purposes, is to show us the need for that Savior. He did not come to abolish all those things in the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. Now, we can use it rightly now that we have that redemption accomplished in Christ. Those, these, these two things are connected with one another. That means that as we pursue the cultural mandate, creating culture as believers, we have to recognize that we have a responsibility that it points to Christ. And by the way, this isn't the only verse that shows it. There's, there's a bunch of verses in the Old Testament and New Testament that show this. And we can only do this well. Therefore, all this is, there's a center, whole center piece right here. And that center piece is Christ. Okay. And we can't do it with, you're going to be pulled from both sides, pulled from the side of the world and pulled from the side of people that want to use you uh, to create culture and do things their way, both mass and individual, pop and folk. They'll all be always pulling. Okay. And the only way that it happens is if we can do it as rooted in Christ. And that's what we'll get to next week. So I'm going to give you four passages I want you to read. This is your assignment. 
and then you'll be, you'll be, you'll be, well, we're, and we're done for today. Four passages to read for next week. Number one, read Exodus chapter 20, verse four. Exodus chapter 20, verse four. For those astute Bible knowledge people, you will know that that is smack dab at the Ten Commandments. Read a Ten Commandment. You only got to read one of them, just the second one. Then I want you to read Exodus 31, verses 1 through 11. Now, that's one of those passages that has a list, and there's a reason you're reading the list, okay? You can read it fast. You don't have to see everything. Just know it's a list. Exodus 31, verses 1 through 11. Then I want you to read Acts 17. Again, astute Bible scholars will know that in Acts 17, there's this passage about Mars Hill and Paul that's used a lot when we talk about apologetics and sharing the faith, but we're actually not focused on it for that on this one. I want you to read one verse, Acts 17, verse 22. That's it. I mean, you can read all the rest of it around it if you get excited, but that's the only verse you got to read. 17, what? I'm sorry. 17, 22. Okay. 17, verse 17, or chapter 17, verse 22. And the last one I want you to read, this is the long one. I want you to read Colossians, and I want you to read chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And basically because Colossians is my favorite book in the Bible, so you have to read three chapters. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, and we'll see what that looks like. All right, let me pray for us, and we're, we'll wrap up. We're done. Father, thanks for this time you've given us, Lord. Thank you for these folks in here. Lord, thank you for the chance we have to study your word and understand who we are to be as image bearers and culture makers. You have given us the call to be both. We can't not be both, as a matter of fact. We will always be image bearers. We will always be culture makers. Um, to help us to do it for your glory, not for our own, and not for our own gain, and not for our own purposes, but for yours. As Dad said this morning, we were saved for a purpose, and we should live on purpose for Christ. Help us to know that and understand it while we're studying our place as culture makers and image bearers. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.